Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Liberty and the Law, the podcast series that examines the critical elements of a strong legal defense in criminal cases. Join respected attorney James Dore for this lively discussion on the rights of criminal defendants and the important role defense attorneys play in our legal system. Each month here on Liberty and the Law, I get to visit with uh, Lavelle Law criminal defense attorney James Dore. And we always discuss uh, different topics related to criminal defense. Uh, and frequently those uh, include discussions include uh, recent judicial rulings at the state or federal level. Uh, so there's always a lot going on. And uh, this month we're going to try something a little bit different. Hi, everybody. This is Jim Mitchell. And, and as I said, while I enjoy those in-depth discussions, more often than not, um, I always feel like we're kind of leaving content on the table when our, when our podcast time is up. So with that in mind, let's, uh, let's maybe pull back on the reins a little bit today. And we're going to go back and review something that uh, time didn't allow us to cover in the past. But uh, before we get into that, let me welcome James Dorr. Uh, always a pleasure to have you with us. Uh, Mr. Dorr, thanks for being here. Good to talk to you today. Hey, Jim. It's good to be back on. Always look forward to our uh, chats together. And we, as I mentioned, we, we, get, uh, we get into some great topics and we discuss laws and procedures or specific cases. Absolutely, Jim. I know we've we've talked uh, in the past about the the proper role of the defense attorney and what you know what what the defense attorney's uh, uh, role to play in the in the judicial process. Um, one of those one of those roles that, that we play is in reviewing um, you know the discovery, reviewing what happens with an arrest, what happened to our client. Um, sometimes it, it, it's uncovered that there was an unconstitutional seizing of evidence or unconstitutional arrest. So in times like that, it's the defense attorney's job to point out to the judge, to the court, say, hey, you know, and do this through motion. That's how attorneys talk to courts is, is one of the ways is through motion. So we file a motion, and the motion would be to suppress evidence. And the evidence would be uh, we're trying to suppress. The grounds for that would be based on, a, a violation of our client's constitutional rights. So the, 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 the rule, the judicial rule that allows for a judge to exclude evidence in, in a case of you know, improperly seized evidence or a, a constitutional violation would be the exclusionary rule. So that's the, mm-hmm. the big name for the doctrine that allows for a judge to, um, uh, to prohibit unconstitutionally seized evidence from being uh, uh, presented in court in a case in chief against a defendant. So it cannot be used to prove guilt. Mm-hmm. And, and just to be clear, you're, so the, you're not questioning the validity of the evidence. Um, you know, it may be entirely true and accurate, but, but what you're attacking there is the, the manner in which that evidence was gathered. Oh yeah, absolutely. In, in fact, it's it's probably very strong evidence. That's why we're trying to get it excluded. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's evidence mm-hmm. of guilt, and the fact that it, it's not is it, it the evidence itself and, and the quality of the evidence isn't the the point. The point is how it was obtained by the government, and if it was obtained by the government in in violation of our client's rights, then that's why would we would seek to prohibit that evidence from being used. 
uh, in court. And, and there's reasons for that. But one of the reasons is is if a, if a defendant's constitution or constitutional rights are violated, um, what's the remedy for that? Because often there's immunity on the part of the police officers for being involved. You know, there's government of, governmental immunity. So where's the, you know, how do we rectify the situation where our rights have been violated? Well, this rule was created to say, hey, the government, the prosecutors, and the police can derive no benefit then from seizing evidence okay. improperly. That is the, the remedy. You know, that's one of the rationales behind the rule and, and, and the, the existence of the rule. And, and there's probably different ways we can look at this. I'm going to try and go through a few of them with you here. But we, you and I have reviewed some, some court rulings recently that focus primarily on the, on the Fourth Amendment. So as you begin work on a case and you're looking at the evidence, uh, you know, something gathered from a home or, or a person's property in some way, if you don't see a proper search warrant being used, then, then that's the first thing. It's kind of a red flag for you. Right, absolutely. I mean, it, and it, it, that's what we're talking about. You know, the, the, in the big picture, constitutional rights, you know, Fourth Amendment rights, these are rights that our founding fathers took the time to lay out in the Constitution, in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. It says specifically, these are, these are rights. Um, mm-hmm. So say the, the government comes and they search your house without a warrant, without even bothering to go to a judge to get what is considered reasonable since the time of that the Constitution and before reasonable to go and ask a judge for a warrant to search the house saying these are the reasons why I want to search this house okay um, so what what is the remedy if if police agencies make no effort to get a warrant they just go and say ah, you know they, they're on a hunch they, they think there's drugs in a house and they go and they, and they just flat out search the house without a warrant you know should that evidence then be used against the, the defendant in court and I think that you know the rationale behind the exclusionary rule is no, that was unreasonable how the, the state went about getting that evidence that they very easily could have gone to a judge and gotten a warrant to, to search that house. And, and would you see the same kind of situations in a in a traffic stop, things like that? We've talked about those situations as well. Sure, sure, same same thing. And again, it comes down to the defense attorney's job in reviewing uh, the, the the evidence. Um, sometimes we have to have hearings and put on officers and find out, you know, a little bit uh, between the lines kind of stuff uh, because the reports don't give you everything. Sometimes you have to start asking questions. You know, defense attorneys have their own hunches. So um, in, in, sta- in, in cases like automobile stops, we're looking to see, was the stop of the vehicle reasonable, meaning was there a traffic violation or did my client have a warrant out for his arrest, something like that. Or was it just, you know, let's just stop this car because we think we don't like the looks of the person driving. Well, then it gets into that, it was this stop proper, okay? Um, yeah. So, the, again, the, the defense attorney will file that motion, ask for a judicial review of, this, of the facts, and, again, put on clients, put on uh, officers, put on our evidence, and make our case. And we would always argue this is unreasonable, this, the, the evidence should be excluded. You've mentioned a couple times the motion uh, to suppress. Now, is this something that happens prior to the to the trial itself? Does it happen during during the course of the trial? Is there a sort of a sequence to follow? Uh, absolutely, would be in a pre-trial motion, um, mm-hmm. and so it, it kind of lets everybody know ahead of time what evidence is going to be allowed at, at, at the trial or not. So, say there's um, evidence of, of a, a drug case. Okay. Let's say there's a, a substantial amount of drugs, and it, we file a motion. There's a finding that it was, uh, you know, unconstitutionally seized evidence, and therefore, file. 
the prosecutor cannot bring in that you know that big bag of drugs and say this is what this is evidence of the guilt. So essentially, the, the prosecutor is left without a lot of evidence there. So you know it would often lead to a dismissal of charges rather than lead to a trial itself. So a lot of times, a, a pretrial motion uh, a motion to suppress can be dispositive of a case. Um, again, it, it depends on what kind of remedy that the, the judge fashions, but in a case like this where the exclusionary rules in play and that evidence would be excluded, that's 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 a big win on the part of the defense attorney for getting that motion filed and granted. James Dore is, uh, as always, a central figure here on Liberty and the Law, and um, uh, he's an experienced criminal defense attorney at Lavelle Law and is, uh, I think, going to be almost as experienced in doing podcasts. Uh, he does a great job with us. If you uh, visit his profile page at lavellelaw.com, you'll not only learn about James's background and philosophy, but uh, you get a, a growing list of podcasts you can download there as well, and a series of articles he's authored. So plenty of information, um, like we're getting today. Now, you, you would, you, we talked about the the motion to suppress pretrial motion. Um, maybe this is too broad of a question, but in in terms of protecting the rights and when something seems to be amiss in the process, do you find that uh, the judges are, are generally supportive of these motions? Well, it depends on how clear the violation is, but I think if 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 I'm doing my job and I'm presenting evidence that there was a constitutional violation, then it's part of that job. The judge's job is to enforce the laws, the Constitution, and and exclude that evidence. So it's not really a, a matter of want to; it's a matter of obligated to. Um, mm-hmm. We present our case, and if that's if that's the case, um, you know that that, but. The real world, there's different judges in all ends of the spectrum. Yeah. So, um, some some uh, a violation I would term as egregious might be seen as as a minimal violation by a judge. So, um, again, that's the real world of of, of lawyering and what goes uh-huh. on in the court of law every day. And I wonder, um, we mentioned the scenario in which uh, evidence is gathered without a search warrant. Just the presence of a warrant itself may not be enough, though. I mean, do you ever find that there were procedural errors uh, in getting a warrant or something incorrect about the warrant that still allows you to challenge the evidence under those conditions? Well, in, in those cases, I mean, sometimes there's an exception to uh, uh, the exclusionary rule for an honest mistake on the part of the police officer. So let's say in a case where you know, I pointed out there was no warrant at all. Well, let's say the warrant, there was a search warrant issued, but there was some kind of mistake in it. Now, um, it, it, in that case, you know, does the exclusionary rule apply when there's no bad faith on the part of the police? So things like that where there's no bad faith and there's no um, incentive to try to discourage uh, behavior like that in the future, mm-hmm. um, evidence would be allowed in sometimes. So one of the exceptions to the exclusionary rule is an honest mistake on the part of the police. So again, it gets down to that courtroom scenario, uh, presenting yeah. arguments on on all sides, and you know that's what case law is all about. Those are real life cases that developed into the the, the the cases that we read about. And you've always been a strong proponent for an accused person not saying anything more to the police than than is absolutely necessary when when they're first stopped or questioned or interrogated in some way. Can you ultimately suppress things that perhaps a defendant said during the arrest or some sort of questioning um, and, and challenge, you know, a, a verbal comment as well? 
Sure. Well, one of the things that can be suppressed isn't just, you know, actual physical evidence. Sometimes it can be a, a, an evidence such as the form of a statement. So a statement against interest or confession, right? If there's a confession but it was improperly obtained, um, so it's not only Fourth Amendment violations, it can be Fifth Amendment violations such as um, not letting a person have an attorney and continuing questioning. Now, you know, it's not just simply a matter of not telling that person about it. an attorney. Let's say that if just flat out you can't have a lawyer, and he's you know after being you know after a defendant asks for a lawyer. Well, in in cases like that where there's a clear violation, a statement can be. So um, again, it's really getting into the you know the, the finer points here. But um, under case law such as Miranda and others, um, statements themselves would not be able to be used as, as in a case in chief against a a defendant. And uh, moving ahead from, you know, we talked about the pretrial motions. Um, once you get into the trial, um, I assume you still have the opportunity during a trial to try and challenge evidence as it's being presented, but is it much more difficult to do at that stage? Well, there's there's evidence you'll want to try, uh, try to prevent just at, at the start of a trial because you know that there's it's powerful evidence and you have some suspicion that it was improperly obtained. But let's say we're at that point where we're in the middle of a trial. A lot of times there's typical uh, um, objections to evidence as it comes in. It could be on the part of the state or the defendant, but we would object to foundation, object to the relevance, there's typical objections. But if some, somehow along the course of a trial it comes out that there was, an, there was a constitutional violation here that you know nobody had suspected beforehand, all right, at that point, it probably would be proper to file the motion at that point or make the always make the objection in court. You want to make your objection okay. so it can be reviewed by an appellate court later on. So let's say our judge makes the, makes the wrong decision. We, that can always be looked at by a, an appellate court down the road. So always want to object, preserve your objections. That way you can preserve your record. Um, but it, also in cases where there's a clear violation, the judge, him or herself, would have an obligation perhaps to, to do something to, to remedy the situation. So um, there's a continuing obligation on the part of the judge to make sure a defendant's rights are, are uh, you know, they're protected during the course of that trial. So an un- a constitutional violation that comes to, to the attention of the court for the first time during a trial, I think that it would be on the uh, responsibility of the judge to try to assess the, the, the proper way to respond to that violation. Well, as I mentioned at the beginning, we always uh, get a great deal of detail, and uh, I've done it again today on this little sidetrack we've taken. So thanks to James Dorff for being here. Appreciate his time, as always. And uh, certainly thank all of you for listening to this edition of Liberty and the Law. Get some more information at 847-705-7555 or lavellelaw.com. We'll look forward to talking to you again next time.